Us hunters need good glass. The well-balanced size Conquest HD binoculars provide outstanding performance for an amazing hunting experience at an unbelievably attractive price. The Conquest range will impress you with the largest field of view in its class. Even at long distances, it provides detailed views of wildlife and enables long, fatigue-free observation. A HD lens system gives great low-light performance and excellent target resolution. These rugged binos carry a 20-year Australian replacement or repair guarantee. Find your local stockers at osaustralia.com.au. With the crazy world we live in today, many of us seek the adventure of the unknown. Join us everyday Aussies from all walks of life share stories from men and women of all hunting camps. From tips and techniques to the emotional rollercoaster ride of fulfilling a lifelong dream, there is a story to be told by all. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. Righto. And we're live. Okay. He's going, folks. It's um, Jake Gasparowski um, sitting here, putting down another um, podcast for you all, and I think you um, will really enjoy this one. It's um, about a man that I've always um, wondered about, heard rumours about, and um, got to meet the man. And um, I am, um, yeah, I'm glad I did go out of my way to make sure I met this man and um, I'm sitting here in the company of Clark McGee, a man that um, some people may have some interesting theories on, but I'm uh, sitting down with a man and spending the night, enjoying a meal, driving around his place here, um, realise that uh, he's probably not the man some people may perceive. He's um, a man that's not in it for himself, um, he really is in it for everybody else. And um, some people probably right now are thinking, oh, oh, yeah, I don't know, but um, no, that's the truth, I'm telling you now. So uh, I'm going to sit down and have a chat with him. Hopefully he's um, get to hear the real Clark, see what he's, hear what he's about, and um, take some advice on board. And this won't be a one-off thing. I think there will be more to come. So, yeah, enjoy. Clark, how are you, mate? Good mate, yourself? Mate, great. Great. That's good. Welcome. Mate, yeah, sitting up here on a in a lodge built with hand, blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> yeah. A long time ago up in the mountains, Glenfiddich yeah. Lodge, correct? Yes, the Glenfiddich Lodge, it's uh it's nothing flash, but a lot of people come here and they feel that it's one of their favorite places to uh to go to. It's, like you said it's rough, handmade. Oh, mate, it's got a, it's got a, um, something about it, but it's, well, you um, say ambiance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's something about it, you can, yeah, or some stories being told around this table. Yes, there's been a lot of people sit at this old table here, a lot of, um, or say in the hunting industry, or hunting, um, area, sphere, there's a lot of the big names that have sat at this table. Yeah. And a lot of people I've got a lot of respect for, yeah. Yeah, that's the way. That's the way, and um, I was, yeah, I'm humble enough to sit around it now. So, yeah, very thankful for that, and righto. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Who's Clark McGee? Gee, it's a, <clears throat> it's a hard question in some ways, and I would say to people that, that uh, his, it's hard to write history until it's over. So 
when people say, you know, who's Clark McGee? Well, sometimes you don't even know till you you through it, till you to the not to the end of your life, but when yeah. you're through it a bit. And, and I suppose I'd describe myself first and foremost as a hunter. Yep. And uh, probably didn't set out to be that specifically and say I'm just going to be a hunter or whatever. I've done a lot of things in my life, but um, predominantly when it comes down to where my, my, I suppose, my passion for life is, is, is actually <clears throat> to, be a, to be a good hunter. And I, I think a lot of people these days don't realise what the true meaning of the word is. Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, so, yeah, and probably, probably just, a, just a country boy that's got a bit grey, I suppose. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, but yeah, no, you're far from the end of your time, but I can guarantee you that. So, um, well, let's start from the beginning. You know, you're known for deer, been around deer, I reckon, by the sound of it, most of your life. Yep. Yeah, where, is, I suppose where, for me, it's where it started um, <clears throat> is uh, I was born into it because mm -hmm. my, uh, well, so my dad, uh, Jim McGee, Dad was, uh, well, I say when he went to school, when he went to school for a start, grade one, they had to teach him how to speak English because all he could speak was Gaelic because my grandparents were so broad Scots. Oh, yeah. So, so the Gaelic is a, <clears throat> if people don't know, that is a, a native tongue of the Scottish the people. Scots, yeah. Yep. yep. So, yeah, he was born just off the boat from yep. Scotland. And... Uh, Probably to put a bit of background there, uh, my great-grandfather was pulling out a, uh, a cart horse out of an underground coal mine by the time he was 11 years old. Right? And my grandfather, he was 12-year-old when he was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So they were very, very poor socio-economic you know, class um, Scots. But that made them tough. They were tough. They were, they were tough. tough. So yeah. they were brought up in the... In the Union movement, yep. you know, the, 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 the breaking the chains, I suppose, and uh, went through, you know, probably every fight that was over there, every major battle in history, you know, they were there fighting with the clans. So tough people, never had much, and uh, went to New Zealand. So my dad, you know, uh, at, uh, I think he was 12-year-old, 13-year-old when he uh, left school, and was uh, swinging a broad axe, cutting white pine sleepers uh, and using a crosscut saw by the time he was 13. Um, <clears throat> you know, as, as, as poor as church mouse, mice, you'd always say. So he was in New Zealand, west coast of the South Island of New Zealand, in deer country. So yep. as soon as he could hold a rifle, he was <clears throat> hunting deer. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Um, he then went on uh, to be a colour in uh, the South Island. He moved to Manapuri. So what years are they like? When you say the colour, like a lot of some people might think, oh, what's a colour? So right. New Zealand people not, not realise the numbers got to such a high point yeah. that the government said we need to do something about this. Yeah. And they were getting people, paying people to drop the numbers of deer, correct? Yeah, for a start, it didn't start off like that. Dad said, as a culler, for a start, their job was to cull the herd. Yep. Was to take out the inferior bloodlines, 
keep the female numbers down and to leave the good quality stags and what. So that was the name of uh, you know, the cull, to yep. cull the herd. But he, he said soon they realised that they could not get on top of the numbers and the cullers turned into killers. Yep. So they had to just kill everything. The dad said he couldn't carry enough ammunition sometimes. Yeah. So um, they'd, they'd go out sometimes for three months at a time. They'd get airdropped uh, in provisions where yep. they were. And, um, yeah, so they had this incredible job under, you know, the toughest of conditions using L303s. This was just after the war. Dad was yep. too young to, to go into the war. He was uh, in the Home Guard over there. So he, he sort of saw, you know, service, I suppose, but only in a, you know, militia type. And uh, so, yeah, he was in that era where it was straight after the Second World War, 303s were everywhere, as much ammunition as you wanted to shoot. And they'd take a, you know, what do you call a sugar bag full of, um, of uh, ammunition with them and go up and just shoot every deer they could That's... at that time. Uh, and they were getting paid per tail. So they had to cut the tail off and a strip of skin up the back of the, the deer. As proof of payment. As proof of payment. Yeah. yeah. So and essentially similar to our dog scout. Yeah, system. dog scalps sort or of system. Yep. Yeah, and I think at one time they were getting like a quid a tail at yep. that time. You know, so it was it was quite good money. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. He uh, he said often they'd come back in because he'd put them on a string around his waist. Yeah, just put a little slit in the end of the uh, piece of skin and hang the tail off his belt. Yeah, and he said he'd come back in looking like a yeah you know, like a Roman gladiator with like a skirt of tails around. <laughs> you know? so, I think his best day, I, I can't remember exactly uh, from not looking at his diaries, but I think his best day was 57 or something he shot, and that was bush shooting. Yeah, on shooting. foot, and that's not ever helicopter. On no, on, on foot, yeah. Yeah. But um, In solid terrain. None solid. of our yeah. soft country, like those who have been in New Zealand understand, those that haven't, yeah. it's very different to our terrain. Yeah. It's mountain Shocking, country. Yeah. Terrific it's, country, yeah. Yeah, you got to be tough to to survive out there. Yeah, so he went on then meat shooting, and uh, he was working for the uh, the Morels. Uh, a lot of people would know the Morels from uh, you know the the Wapiti history books, where they they were uh, Les Morel was a very very keen and well thought of um, uh, Wapiti hunters uh, hunter in the early days. So Dad actually <clears throat> grew up to be a uh, a guide, so he was for a few years there. He was, you know, the young like apprentice guide, mm -hmm. uh, rowing the boats for him up the sounds, and and uh, he was with them when they took some of the, you know, some of the big heads as well. Uh, so that was sort of his history. He got rheumatic fever, got rheumatic fever, and uh, the doctors told him to get out of New Zealand for the winter times. So he decided to jump on a ship and come over to Australia. He went roo shooting, cane cutting for a couple of years, yeah, and then go back to New Zealand for the for the basically summer months over here for the winter months, yeah. And then he decided to uh, to go to the Northern Territory and shoot a buffalo and a crocodile, yeah. And anyway, it was a long story. That's a great story, probably even for some other time. But he uh, he uh, he arrived in the Northern Territory and run into a really Really, what uh, year is that? Just to give people a rough uh, idea, rough rough year. In the late fifties. Because you mentioned yeah. crocodiles, so some people might think, "Oh, you, can you shoot crocodiles?" Back then, yeah. you could. Late fifties, yeah. yeah. Late fifties into early sixties, and uh, yeah, he uh, arrived up there and ran into a really wild character that was uh, that, 
it uh, took him on pretty um, pretty roughly for a start. Yeah. Uh, I said it's an incredible story. It'd take me probably an hour to tell the whole story, but he he uh, run into this character and ended up as a uh, professional buffalo shooter. Yep. In the Northern Territory, um, <coughs> shooting buffaloes and crocs for the first export abattoirs uh, that they had up at um, Deepwater, yep. uh, Mount Bundy Station. And um, <coughs> yeah, the uh, this guy uh, by the name of Elvin Parrot, Elvin Parrot Senior. And um, <coughs> as it turned out, he had a couple of daughters, and uh, Dad, you know, fell for the oldest daughter, and that's that was my mum. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, so from there, <clears throat> they went back to New Zealand. Uh, Dad was, was working over there. They'd come back over here, back and forwards. Uh, so us kids grew up then in the Northern Territory mm -hmm. uh, and travelling from the Northern Territory to New Zealand every year. Yeah. Then when the uh, Dad hurt himself and Granddad had a stroke and the um, buffalo market dropped, at the time, so they sold out, and uh, the next thing we know, we had a property up here at the head of the Brisbane Valley. Yeah. And um, Dad bought into it, and uh, for us kids, that's you know where we you know there was home. Mm -hmm. And he knew very little about farming. Mum did; she was a you know, a country uh, lady. Yeah. And uh, so then it was you know raising cattle and and growing crops on our property up here yep yep so it was a sort of a bit of a diverse <laughs> background uh but it it was like a it's a you know big story in itself how a, how a, uh, you know a scottish guy basically kiwi yeah with with uh nothing to his name came over and married the, the eldest daughter of a, a big land yeah you know, land baron over here yeah um a lovely old character but uh my granddad but uh, so he was brought into that side. Yep. The reason that they got on so well together, my granddad and dad, was that my granddad was one of the keenest deer hunters you'd ever meet. Okay. So that's what his, you know, every year he'd take a couple of weeks off and go for a, uh, a holiday, granddad, and he'd get his pack horses and horses and he'd ride off in the bush and go stag shooting. In Australia? In, right here, in yep. this range. So he'd ride out from Elgenvale up here and ride off into the top ranges, the headwater country of the Brisbane Valley, and go chasing stags. Unreal. Unreal. So that's that was their com, you know, commonality. Mm -hmm. Dad was so keen, and, and yep. um, they got on like father and son. Yeah, they yep. were always um, top mates. So um, that was the linkage. So it wasn't just you know me deciding to be a hunter from nowhere. It was my mum raised deer. She hunted deer as well. Yep. And Dad was such a keen deer hunter, and Granddad. And my uncles and the whole lot, you know. Yeah, it's literally in your blood, passed blood, down. Passed down. Through, yeah, from the Scotland, Scotland. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, Dad would always tell stories of, from, you know, the, the uh, relations in Scotland uh, about things that they'd do. And it didn't really, when I was younger, it didn't really sink in that much, but... They were basically uh, stories about how to poach duck and quail and deer off the estates of the English. Well, back then, barons. they would have had to survive. That's because to. of the, yep. you know, in the wealth in the country. You know, you're either at the top or you're at the bottom. Yeah, they're at the bottom. Yeah. And yeah, you got to eat. You'll yeah. do whatever you can to eat. It's funny. My dad was talking about uh, one time about catching ducks, and and the way they'd catch the ducks was to put stakes. Uh, cut 
cut wooden stakes and push them in. He said you'd push them in underwater and put a rock on them and tie a little bit of cord with a fish hook on the end of it and bait it with a little potato, he said, a little potato. And um, he said then you'd come back the next night, he said you'd come back the next night and you know the duck will have eaten the, the little potato, pulled the rock off the top of the stake and drowned itself. Yeah, right, in, eh? in the in the in the dam or in the water hole, and you'd reset it, take the duck, and off you go. Yeah, it didn't really sink in for a long time there what he was talking about, but what it was was they were poaching the ducks out of the estate, so they'd go in at night and put the stakes in and the rocks so they're underwater, so they couldn't be seen. Yep. And when the duck took the bait, ducks underwater, he couldn't be seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd come back the next night, so it didn't really make sense as a young bloke. But then, as you got older, you thought that's what they were doing to survive. Yeah. Under threat of death. Yeah. 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 So, so that was the history, and that's where we started, and we came up into the headwater country here of, of um, the Brisbane Valley, and uh, we were running cattle and growing crops, and. Uh, yeah, the, uh, you might have seen a clip I put on there recently about a, a, a poem I put on on, the, uh, on Facebook that I wrote at that time. And what it was based on is we were, one morning we looked out from, from um, the kitchen window right on daybreak and there was a shadow on one of our crops. Mm -hmm. And we looked up and wondered what this shadow was. And Dad said, what, what the heck is that up there? And then we... We looked out and there was 163, I think it was deer and one, red deer and one mob yep. coming on the crop. Yeah. And uh, times it was dry times and we had this crop of sorghum in and the deer came in and the damage they were doing was unbelievable. Yep. And that's when, you know, like I was hunting at the time, I was only, only young, I was bow hunting. Yeah. And taking a, a deer or two at that stage with my little bow. Mm hmm and uh, all of a sudden here were these deer on the place and the dis a decision had to be made and there was dad as a deer culler that you know used to kill him thousands and thousands of deer and he said to me i remember you know as a young lad he said we've either got to do something with them and farm them or we've got to kill them all yeah and that was probably a, a big turning point in my life because it was either go down one track yeah totally we'll go the other track yeah and uh what i found is that there's been i've probably s s tried to strive my whole life for a middle ground mm -hmm. so it wasn't just kill them all yeah and it wasn't total exploitation yeah i see there's a balance in between the two yep so yeah that was the, basically that probably was the, the the event that um that set me on the path that i've gone on for my whole life oh no yeah and um, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. That'll give you a, a fair background. So, back then, when you saw a hundred and sixty odd deer, how long ago was that? That was in the um, late seventies. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The late seventies. Yeah. That's when. Um, that's when sort of the mid seventies would have been on the, of people realised there was a um, a tag system like to shoot back then. Red deer, correct me at any time if I'm wrong, no. were protected. <clears throat> yeah. And to shoot a red deer, you needed to buy a tag from the government. Yeah. So at one stage, which is probably why people don't realise and they maybe think why we have a red deer on our Queensland state coat of arms. Yeah. So 
at one point they were a very prized animal. Yeah, it's, it's very it's, it's strange, and I see this as one of our biggest problems we've had in the country. Um, when they put the deer here, they were a gift from uh, Queen Victoria to, I think it was to mark it as Silver Jubilee, um, to the to the gift a gift to the people of Queensland or of Australia for their food and enjoyment. Mm -hmm. But they put them out there, but they didn't then put in place a system to manage them. Yep. Now anybody, if they'd asked any you know any ghillie over there, any estate owner in England or Scotland to say you know what the deer do, they could have told them right from that stage how fast they breed and what they could expect in a few years and what they had to do mm -hmm. to manage them. And that really should have been put in place as the deer were released. Yeah. To say we need to do this and and this is you know yeah um, for the future, but it wasn't. It was basically put them out. And see what happens. See what happens. Fully protected at that stage. So from 1873 onwards, they were fully protected, running out onto you know onto landowners' country mm -hmm. and in forestry areas. Uh, and it wasn't until I think 1976, I think could be correct, I think it was 1976 was the first actual tag and permit system yep. that would come in season. So before that 76, could any man, if he had permission on private land, shoot a deer? Um, yes, but not legally. Not legally. Not so legally. legally, he could not. They were yep. essentially a koala bear. Well, basically, they, they were listed under the Nature Conservation Act uh, as a introduced fauna. Mm -hmm. They were classed as introduced yep. fauna. And there was the National Parks and Wildlife at that time that were basically um, controlling that. And so the, the first season, it wasn't a game. They weren't classed as a game animal. They weren't put in as a game permit or anything like that. It was under a Section 25 um, crop protection Mm -hmm. um, system where the landowner had to say that those deer were causing some damage to him on their on their land, whether it's costing him money, yep. costing him money, whatever, and that was how the season got set up. Yep, and that ran till um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think now was it '92? Yep, I think it was about 1992. Um, that system, but unfortunately, it was not uh, well. Um, supported mm -hmm. by hunters. Yep. And I think it averaged out, it was, I think it was less than 20 permits a year on average were issued. Which uh, is, that's statewide <coughs> for people that are listening. 20 permits, 20 tags were handed out for Queensland, not per person, a whole overboard. No, so that, well, it was worse than that. It was worse than that because it wasn't just Queensland. And I had this actually, I was at a national conference getting absolutely berated by a few uh, guys in ADA. And one guy said, this is an absolute disgrace on Queensland. It's a disgrace. He said that you guys couldn't support this better. And I had to correct him at the time and say, it's actually a disgrace on the whole of Australia, every hunter. And it wasn't just not having to go at ADA and that at all, because it was only, they only had represented a few of the hunters. Mm -hmm. So it was anybody, anybody on any group or anything right across Australia. Yeah. There was coming. We had Victorians, New South yep. Welshmen, whatever, coming up here to hunt a deer with a chittle or a, a yep. rooster or a fallow, red. And they're all supposed to get tags and nobody did. Yeah. But it wasn't just that side. It wasn't just that side. There was a lot more to it because the, uh, the deer farmers at the time, um, because we were trapping deer, yeah, catching for the industry. 
Uh, that's when deer were worth money. Worth good money. Back in the day, yeah. they were, weren't just, yeah. yeah. And we were supposed to pay $75 per animal as a fee, as a levy for every animal we caught out of the bush. And to be fair, a lot of the landowners didn't pay that at all either. Right, mm -hmm. so it was both sides. It was all sides. Yeah, it was just right across the board. People were not prepared to take it on. Yeah, as we've been saying all day, too many bush rangers out yep. in the bush. Yeah, so it was it was seen as a right. People said this is our right, but they weren't prepared to take the responsibility as well. Yeah, yeah. In one sense, up. it is their right, but you still there has to be some sort of policing. Yeah, it has good, to be. Got to be both sides. Yep. Rights and responsibility. There's two sides of the coin. Yeah. 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 It was hard to see that at the time, you know, we're, all of us, like I said, you know, we, it's easy to talk about history now because it's, it's, it's in the past, it's behind it's us. It's past, we can look at it, so yep. we've got to learn from that, and that's what we're that's trying to do. That's what we need to do, is learn, learn from, from our mistakes. Yep. So. so, that's when, we, you know, we went on catching. Um, my dad and I made the decision that we'd start to farm, and as soon as I made that decision, it was like as if I'd, I'd you know, <laughs> done something, the worst thing I'd possibly do because there was hunters right around the country that took it on that I, you know, I was so out of line, I was, uh, out of line, I was so wrong to do that. Uh, and uh, it's, as I, I recited in that poem, there was, um, it, it's been a bitterness for some people that has never, ever gone away. It, mm -hmm. has, it has stayed there right to this day that, um, now, I wish I'd done half of the stuff that I've been accused of. It would be, I would have had a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I would have literally had a ball yep. if I'd done a quarter of the stuff I'd been accused of. Yep. Yep. Yeah, But we did, we went out there to, to uh, capture. Uh, I built some ground traps. Yeah. And pretty much straight away after um, um, the first traps I, I built were in place, I had some, I was only 17. Yeah. And uh, I had some guys arrive from New Zealand and they were going to start a helicopter capture operation and they wanted you know, a jumper. They wanted a, a backseat guy. Yep. So this is in the 90s, late 80s? No, this was, uh, first time was 79, 80. Okay. I think it was in, yep. in that time. And um, <clears throat> that's when we started. And uh, um, we were actually operating right through till... What was our last year in the late 80s, I think. Yep. Yeah. So yep. Um, I think in the whole time I flew in, I think it was in total, I think it was 13 different machines. Yep. I flew in and um, under a, a, about four different pilots, five different pilots. Yep. That's not 13 different flights in 13 different machines. That's probably hundreds of hours yeah. in helicopters in the air. Yeah, like. we did. We did uh, I think it was a total of... Um, Five or seven years of like of, of yeah. capture work. So that was that was a helicopter work. I, I actually had ground traps for thirteen years. And what were you capturing them for? What, like why? Right at that time, um, the deer market in New Zealand was going through the roof. Mm -hmm. right? So meat wise, um, you're talking when you say the deer market. Yeah, the meat market, market for a start. The venison market, yeah, was huge. I think it was like half a million carcasses or something were going into Germany or, or into uh, Europe. At that time, uh, that was when the you know the deer wars were on in New Zealand, and then the deer farming became a, a big thing. So, yep. um, so it was like through the 70s, the meat side was was 
pretty much, I think, the, uh, the main thing. And then as it went through the, to the late 70s, it was the capture. It was the deer farming yep. was the big thing. Um, velvet, when my dad was shooting, uh, like skins and meat shooting in the, in the um, uh, that was in the mid-60s, uh, before we settled, we, we settled up here in 67 mm -hmm. uh, at Eldon Vale. But sort of so in those the early 60s, he was uh, shooting a lot for meat and for velvet. And at that stage, the uh, deer antlers, they could shoot a stag, cut the velvet antler off and bring it back on your pack. And I think they were sell, selling it for a pound a pound at that stage. So Which is big huge money. money. Huge money. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of guys were just going out and shooting stags while they are in velvet yep. to, to supply that market. Uh, so... That was one of the big things that was underpinning the, the deer market here, was the deer velvet. Uh, yeah, so the, the wild red hinds were selling, I saw them sell up to about $2,400 each, and that's straight off the helicopter. So that's in the 80s? Early 80s. So, so. when people put that in perspective, that's rid ridiculous money. Ridiculous money. So a big, healthy, Big, healthy, friggin' Santa cow. What was she worth back then? At uh, that time, probably, I was, well, I was, when the beef uh, depression was on, a lot of people don't realise that too, that the beef depression was in 70, I think it was 75, 76, around mm -hmm. that time. Uh, and it was when America cut back on the, uh, on the contracts for Australian beef yep. because of uh, brucellosis and TB. They said mm -hmm. it was in our, in our herds. Yep. Uh, it was in the 70s and um, our markets crashed. Yep. So we had, uh, I remember going to a sale in, uh, in Mergen with dad and we saw cattle sell for as low as a dollar. We had some steers that sold for $14 each. Yep. And I know a bloke that you know took cattle there, and he got actually got a bill for the uh, cartage transport. Was out, outweighed the friggin', outweighed what he got for the cattle. So put that in perspective. So you got twenty three hundred dollars, you said for a red hind. For red hind, yeah. And the cattle weren't even worth taking to the friggin' sale yards. After... Sorry about the roosters. In That's here, all mate. right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> He's just coming in to say good day. Uh, it, it did pick up after that, yep. but it was still, you're only talking the hundreds of dollars. Yeah, yep. If you sold a big bullock and you got $800, $900 for him, that was big yep. money. Yeah, right. Money. So let's just say let's under a grand. That one, we? <laughs> <laughs> under under a grand it. and something that weighed a tenth of its weight yep. is worth $2,300. Yeah. Like. yeah. So you're looking at a couple of thousand dollars average on yep. a line uh, taken out of the bush. Yeah. Yeah, it was big money. Uh, BTEC was on at that, that time. A lot of people don't understand what BTEC was, and that was the brucellosis and TB eradication campaign. Mm -hmm. and that's when the buffalo and uh, the cattle, the wild cattle up in the north there, they had choppers shooting them for, for quite a few years, ground shooting, shot hundreds of thousands of animals up there because of the brucellosis and TB. Uh, to get it under control to a point where the markets were reinstated so the cattle industry could get going again. Yep. So it had been tough times through the 70s and then here we were going into the 80s with you know cattle only worth like half as much as a, as a fresh caught deer. Yep. So there was ground traps everywhere, landowners saw it as a chance to, to, cash, to catch in. back, cash in. Deer numbers were probably at 
uh, quite a high level yep. at that stage. There was some properties down here where you know we could go onto and see five, six hundred deer without a problem yep. uh, running on the on the country. Uh, some places more, you know, we'd see 140, 150 hinds in a mob. Yep. And uh, so it was it was a big business then. Yep. And it was it caused a lot of tensions. Uh, we had multiple multiple death threats. I, I and it caused when you say tensions. Who did it cause tensions between? Basically between the hunters yep. and the hunters and the landowners and between different landowners, different trappers, there was there was So it caused tension between landowners, fellas that wanted to hunt them, but they didn't want to cough up the money to buy a tag. Didn't want to, yeah. Wouldn't even pay I think it was ninety five dollars by memory, right. I think it was. There was and you got two tags, one hind and one stag tag. Yeah. Right. So they wouldn't cough that up. Uh, the landowners, they wouldn't pay their, their fee per, their royalty per deer. Yep. And it was called a royalty. And who did they have to pay that to? To the government. To the, okay. To the, um, na I think it was National Parks and Wildlife or to, yeah, they would have been administrative. And they had to pay that what, when they took an animal from their place. Yeah. So we had to get a permit to take uh, to X amount deer. of deer, to trap deer. Yep. Right? So we were all those permits and uh, Pretty soon I'll be doing some clips on those mm -hmm. for people to, to view. Yep. Uh, on a lot of that history, we've got a lot of those old documents there because I think it's it's a stumbling block we've got at the moment. There's a lot of people uh, coming on, younger guys that don't know any of that old history. They don't know they, the history. They oh, don't know like, I thought I was a diehard red deer man and I what I've learned. I think in, you are. Well, <laughs> I, yes, but I have what I have learned in the last 24 hours is not what I thought I'd learn. Like there's facts and figures and stuff that I had no idea about. Right. So it's great to learn that and it makes you think about other things down the track where yeah. we should have learned from our mistakes. Exactly. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's my whole uh, purpose for what I do is that I believe that, that uh, we can all improve on this. We've yep. all got to work together. It's a cooperative approach we need if we're going to survive. Oh, as, we have to, if hunters. we don't. If we don't cooperate. I can guarantee yeah, you that yeah. everyone listen to this podcast, if we don't get together, and yes, there'll be different theories of how, why, at the end of the day, we need to get, stick together because in 10, 20 years time, none of us will be walking through the bush. No. Doing, we, won't, we won't be allowed to walk in the bush. Yeah, that's, you know, in them state the forests, yep. them frigging national parks, and the cocky ain't going to want you there. Like no. you, you'll be locked up, sitting at home, twiddling your thumbs, wondering what to do. Yeah. So I'd hate to see that happen. And, and I always say oh, I want my grandkids, grandkids, to be able to yeah. do what I've done. Right? I yeah. want them to experience to get up in the morning and walk out in the bush and be able to look at a deer even, hunt yep. one if they want to, but be free. Yep. And that's that's what I've learned on, on the way. I, I, there was a lot of, like I said, gung-ho times when you were there where you know, deer were worth 2,000 bucks a piece, holy dolly. Yep. You know, my first job was in the back of a huge 500 helicopter, you know, the net gunner out the front, he'd shoot the deer, uh, shoot a net over the deer or shoot at the deer. Sometimes you'd get it by, you know, a couple of meshes and one yep. leg sort of style. My job was to get out on the skid and as soon as you got close enough to the ground to try and bulldog that deer, yeah. get it down, scruff it, tie it up, hook it under the machine and get yourself out of there somehow. Sometimes they'd, you know, you'd just hang on the deer and lift you out. And, yep. um, 
do this and that was it was you know wild times really oh, wild it would have times. been adrenaline pumping yeah it was it was great times <laughs> but it did cause a lot of a lot of conflict um there was operators that were that weren't trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. and my my role at the time and why they wanted me in the back was that because I was a local and I was known by all the different landowners and, you know, I was Elvin Perrett's grandson. Yep. Yeah. You know, so he was a well-respected landowner in the area. Yep. That I was the local set of eyes in the back. Yep. And I was the one that if anything was wrong, <laughs> I got the blame. Yep. If, you know, if someone said you flew over a boundary, well, it wasn't just me flying over the boundary. It was my whole family's reputation flying over that boundary. Yep. Right. So we got, acu- we got accused with, of so many things that, like I said, I wish we had done half of them and we would have felt a bit better probably, but <laughs> we copped it. Uh, the worst um, worst incident probably ever had, we were shot at nine times one day. And a bloke that we both talked about that we called Duck, yep. his brother was with the guy when he was shooting at us. That's yep. why I know about it because he was there yep. seeing it. And three times we were shot at. Yeah. You were in a chopper. Yeah. Yep. Three times I know about. Yep. Right. And there's other people who have skited about it and they, they tried to hit us and whatever yep. else. And this was people employed by the landowner to catch deer for a landowner doing a job. Yep. And that's how far people were prepared to go. Because they were prepared of the, to shoot a helicopter out of the air, kill you. possibly kill you, yep. but they weren't prepared to pay 95 bucks and go buy a tag. That was the So the mentality of, the of yeah, it's it's scary. It, like, was, it was very scary. We had a chopper uh, sabotage one time. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one come out of the sky with us. It was down on Ivory Creek. Yep. Down here, we ended up in pieces in the gully. Yep. Um, a lot of things. We had another one fail another day. You know, you'd, strange things yep. happen, you know. But you could see, and I look back and I can see the reason for it. And, and um, a lot of people at that time were really concerned that we'd wipe the deer out. Yep. Right. And looking at what happened in New Zealand, it came very close to that. In so you New just Zealand. put a fair dent in them. Yeah, we put a fair dent, but the ground trappers always, always believed the ground trappers were worse. Yeah. I had ground traps myself, uh, but a ground trap would entice the animals in and catch everything. Yep. So you catch the spikers, the stag fawns, uh, the mature stags, whatever in a ground trap. Yep. And not many people would let those stags out. No. Right? When they caught not them. Not when it's worth 2400 bucks. Well, the stags weren't worth much at all. Because yeah, okay. they weren't seen as having the genetics. They wanted the breeding stock for the industry. And you'd then look to put a better genetic stag over those, over those hinds. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, for the velvet trade. For the velvet trade. So you yep. needed stuff. Uh, Queensland genetics weren't seen as having the thickness of the bean yep. in them. Yep. Uh, they had the shape, right? The brow, bay, tretine, whatever, but you didn't have the the, uh, the beam density, mm-hmm. the thickness that, that was needed for top quality A-grade velvet. Yep. So the stags were generally not used. So a lot of the fellows that were trapping, if they trapped stags, they'd um, just put them through for meat. Yep. Right, so they'd actually a good ground trap could destroy a whole herd. Yeah. Where on the on the flip side of it, if you're helicopter capturing, you were spooking those you know those deer up. Yeah. You, know, you might pull a mob of say ten out on a face somewhere, 
and you'd net one, I'd pile out on the first one, they'd probably try and net the second one, and if I could, I'd get to the second one, tie it up, but you usually get, you know, one, two, three, maybe out of a mob, and that would be it. Yep. When you hit that mob again the next time, they were already They're on in the, the bushes. They are on the ball. Yeah. You might get one the next time, but what you did, you educated a lot of them. And, and you we, would have pushed them to places they'd never been. Exactly. So Pushed the limits of their home range yeah so we shift the deer from one valley into the next and deer from that valley back into the other one so it mixed the genetics up mm -hmm. and it actually restored the balance in some areas because in er some areas there was like a three or four to one uh, hind to stag ratio yep and by us catching hinds actually in some areas we got it back to like a one to one ratio which was always said to be the optimum ratio for the deer yep so it didn't do as much harm as what thought people thought, but mm -hmm. we were visible and it was a lot of emotions running. People were, you know, were, yeah, it was a really wild time. Yep. Uh, yep. Right through that, that um, deer capture days. So yeah. when, did that, when did them days end? Uh, in, in the 80s, basically, is when the, uh, a lot of the deer were starting to come in from New Zealand. Yep. And when the better genetic ones came in, then the trapping sort of, you know, died down. Yep. There were still some people that were catching, but fallow deer, fallow deer were worth, uh, I've seen a lot of them um, go for $1,000, $1,500 for a fallow doe. Mm -hmm. uh, chittle deer, $1,000 odd dollars. At that stage, there wasn't many rusa, but they were the same thing, $1,000, $1,500 for rusa. Yep. Uh, so the first um, deer sale was actually on this property here. Yep. Um, and the, old, uh, the guy that... Um, We'll say old, you know, Pat's really getting on now in the tooth. He's been a fantastic uh, supporter of, of us here, the mm -hmm. landowner here. Um, incredible old character. And um, he actually uh, had the uh, uh, deer farm called Glenfiddich. That's yep. where we got the name from here, you know, the Valley of the Deer. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, he had the first deer sale down here. And I remember um, it was Donnie Owls and myself actually were handling the deer for for um, for Pat. Yep. And they were selling, I think, like wieners and yearlings were selling a thousand fifteen hundred dollars each. And yep. then there was a, a next sale was over at Oakwood, over at Kandanga. Mm -hmm. uh, big money, you know, in the in the deer at that stage. Yeah. Um, so they were the late eighties, early nineties. That was. That was in the 80s. So yep. I was just so I'd have to check back on the on the, on the dates um, yep. of those first sales, but that would have been early 80s, I think. But that went right through till uh, I think I finished deer farming uh, like commercially uh, late 90s. Yep, uh, like 90s, 2000s. But the deer market took a massive hit. A At massive one point, hit, yeah. they were worth yep. a lot of money. Yeah, and then. Not overnight, but fairly abruptly, she started warming up. Did yeah. it not? There was there was a couple of different times. There was a couple of times that they dropped. Um, one was when they had an influx of you know more deer in from New Zealand. Yep. I think a lot of people overextended when they were bringing in those better genetic animals. Yep. And because they overextended, they had to stay in quarantine for like 200 days. I think it was mm -hmm. 220 days in quarantine. Uh, on the, um, not wasn't the Cocos Islands, it was one island quarantine facilities they had. And uh, people just, you know, some people went broke while they were waiting to get those deer through quarantine. So the prices fell yep. for 
Uh, you could buy um, like New Zealand bloodline, Warnham Park, Woburn Abbey bloodline animals for you know 500 bucks, this sort of stuff. So why would you pay anything for a, a deer out of the bush? So yep. that was one fall. It did pick back up. Um, deer velvet was, for a start, was worth like $100, $150 a kilogram. Mm -hmm. And um, our original stags, you know, if you cut three kilos or four kilos off a stag, you were really doing well. Yep. By the time we finished, we were cutting six, seven kilos, eight kilos of Super A velvet off red stags, at, you know, in Queensland conditions. Yep. So we had those genetics in the Warnham Park, Woburn Abbey, uh, Stoke Park. You know, we had um, uh, they're all lines, festival all Germans. them names you're rattling yep. off now for people who don't know are certain lines of red deer. Certain lines of red deer, yeah. Yep. They had certain traits about yep. them. So uh, a lot of them were the European, um, like a, you know, you got your service Alephus scoticus, your Scottish red, and you know, you've got basically Germanic strains, you've got other ones that are seen as the Eastern European. Uh, Yugoslavian and Hungarian strains, which are sort of more, there's a history back there thrown through to the morale. So they're a different animal again. Yeah. All these different strains of, um, of animals were brought in uh, for deer farming. And uh, the velvet market, I think the best that I ever got was $220 a kilo for some velvet that I sold. Yeah. Uh, and, and what did they use that velvet for? What was the velvet trade? Right. And this is a, it's one of the big fallacies that's been thrown around for years. Uh, everybody's always said, oh, you know, deer velvet. It's just a, yeah, it's just an aphrodisiac. Yeah. It's just an aphrodisiac. Yeah. If you have a look at a list of things that uh, deer velvet is used for, yep. aphrodisiac properties usually comes in between 15 and number 15 and number 20 on the list. Yep. So we're talking like hypertension, high blood pressure, skin disorders, um, stomach problems, menstruation problems, um, a whole row of things that are used. And this is a product that's been used in Asia, documented for over 2000 years. Yep. Right, so it's so not, it really does some have some huge health benefits. It is one of the most magnificent products that you could use. Yeah, well, it sounds like I'm plugging the, the velvet industry. I probably am. I show people oftentimes I've got a scar, a little scar on that side of my leg, and a big one that runs right up that side. Yep. And I was chasing a deer on a motorbike one day, absolutely flat chat, mm -hmm. and run into a stump. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as I went over the handlebars. I wrapped my ankle around the, the handlebar. Yeah. I mean, that was 80 kilometres now to full yeah. stop in a second. And smashed that leg pretty bad. So that, my right leg was wrapped right up around behind itself. I broke yeah. every ligam, ligament, every tendon in that, the bone in seven pieces. Yeah. And the doctor, when I woke up, they were talking to me about cutting my leg off just above the knee because it got infected. And yeah. Whatever. So, um, I was there thinking that my whole life as a as a hunter and whatever I'd never walk again, yeah, and it, uh, it was a yeah tough time. I think I was 26 year old, uh, and one of our velvet buyers, when I say our buyers, I was the um, chief velvet grader for the Australian industry for 11 years. I think it was. Mm -hmm. We actually classified the the deer velvet into about 40 different um, styles yep. grades. 
and then sold it around the Pacific Rim. So it was something mm -hmm. I was really very closely involved in as a velvet production, um, velvet industry. So one of my, my uh, buyers said, why don't you use your own product? What's wrong with you? And uh, uh, my, my wife at the time, my ex-wife now, she's uh, Deb, she got some velvet out of our own stores in our own coal room, chopped it up, rendered it down on the stove as they were told to do. We mm -hmm. rendered it down and I consumed copious amounts of this rendered down like a tallow, like a yeah, uh, velvet yeah, yeah. Yep. extract. Yep. Uh, I, in nine weeks, I was running. I had the plaster off in five weeks. I hunted the whole red deer season with seven pins sticking out the side of my leg and blood running into my boot every day. And it is, here I am now, a few years older, uh, and it it is as good, not a problem with it at all. Yeah. Unbelievable, I cannot, I couldn't recommend it higher, like for that, it was just unbelievable. So, when you think about it, deer velvet, uh, a deer is the only animal in the world that can grow bone outside their body. Mm-hmm. And so they grow the bone outside their body. It grows to a predetermined style yep. with brow, bay, tray, and you can see the antlers off one stag one yep. year. The next year it's similar and then similarly stays that same trait. It's not random. Yep. Very, very calculated thing. And uh, it's the fastest growing uh, tissue, I think, known. I think um, organism, is or, it not? Yeah, yeah it's... As a, far as square inch, Per yep. daylight hours, as far as yeah, yeah, you'll grow. It'll grow a centimeter, centimeter and a half uh, per day. Yeah, yeah, incredible growth rates. Sometimes faster than that on mm. a big elk. Yeah. So the the composition of that of that antler is is incredible. You know, it's, it's like forty seven percent collagen. I think it's got nine different mineral groups. It's got different amino acids. Yeah. Um, prostaglandins, a high level of uh, prostaglandins which are a cell function regulator mm -hmm. and and a myriad of other things that are in in that velvet so basically what it is is growing bone yep so it stands to reason that if you consume something that's just this great bone tonic it has to be doing you good it's got to be doing good and like i said myself uh it was they thought it was a miracle the doctors could not believe how quickly my leg healed and literally I was running in nine weeks after breaking my leg absolutely in pieces. It's a wonder that it's still not a booming industry. Well, it's a big industry overseas. It still is today? Yeah, still is today. Uh, Russia at one stage, uh, I don't know what they're using now, but they were using 600 tonne a year of what we call green velvet. That's frozen, fresh velvet. Yeah. And they were making a drug, and I think they still do, called pentocrine and they use it for a wide range of different ailments uh, but over here everything's got to be put through as you know through our drug administration mm -hmm. you know boards uh, and it's only recently last you know number of years 10 years or so that that they've been looking at it um, especially for sportsmen and now we've seen a lot of trouble in, in america where they've actually had nasal sprays and tablets velvet tablets and some major athletes have actually been, you know, there's been issues there where they've been using it to enhance performance. Okay. Because they're getting, I think, between, by memory, between about 11 and 20% extra uh, performance with people on velvet That's tonics. That's a massive difference. Especially weightlifters and footballers mm. and boxers and stuff like that, yeah. 
So there's a lot to it, a heck of a lot to it. It's a ma uh, an amazing product, uh, being like 2,000 years of, of, of usage. Mm -hmm. That makes it one of our oldest farming products. Yep. Right, so there's a lot of history in, in especially in Europe and, and uh, Asia of yep. using that of deer velvet, and they still do. So that was the industry. Yep. It had good foundations behind it, but um, there was a, ma a major collapse at the. Um, it was when, pretty much the fall of communism in the Soviet bloc. Mm -hmm. uh, it disrupted a, a heck of a lot of things that were going. Heck, of a lot of the markets. Uh, again, that would take a um, probably a day to describe what what happened at that mm -hmm. time. It was incredible, but let's say the the collapse of the the Soviet bloc at the time caused a massive collapse in the deer velvet market, mm -hmm. and we saw uh, deer velvet in the late 90s. It'd be um, it dropped from you know two hundred dollars, hundred and sixty, two hundred dollars a kilo to twenty or thirty dollars a kilo. Yep. which was less than the cost of production. Which is, that's when I suppose farmers started to realise, let's go back to sheep and cattle. Yep. Yeah, and there was no support. And what, what really always uh, annoyed me was that we were paying a levy, I think it was up to 7% levy to a government body for research and it was a rural industries research and development group. Yep. Huge amount of money went into those, uh, into that department yep. to develop markets. Yep. So when the crunch happened and we lost markets, there should have been a lot of money spent to prop the, not prop, but re-establish yep. uh, a very, very good and viable uh, industry, which was the deer farming industry. Yep. Either it be uh, velvet uh, or venison, markets there could have been a lot done to mm -hmm. keep the industry going and there was a lot of us in the industry that lobbied government at that time and said look for god's sake please do not let this industry fall over you know do not let it fall over and literally we were left in the lurch yeah we were just had a, they turned their backs on us yeah and let deer farmers right across the country especially in the middle of the worst drought we'd ever seen and we were at that stage we had four thousand head of deer behind high fence on our property. Yeah. Um, we'd actually grown to the stage of one of the biggest deer farmers around. And the next thing we knew that they were worth nothing overnight. So, which is, um, well, I suppose in the farmer has to make a choice. He's got to, he's got to get rid of them. Yeah. And it ain't, it ain't worth shooting. No. And that was, that was where a lot of our present problems rose from there that, um, our deer, like we had you know, banks attacking us from every angle. We had a lot of stuff happening. And uh, at one stage I had 750 big velvet stags. They yep. all had to go through and get their you know, heads cut off for, for venison, for, yep. for dog meat. Same with uh, females uh, that had genetics that were you know, pure Warnham Park, like stuff that was just to, you know, to you dream of in the early days to have those genetics. Now, and we had yeah. to sacrifice them. Uh, a lot of deer farmers were approached by, by hunters. Yep. And there was a lot of deer that were just taken and shifted somewhere else, right? Yep. At a stage though, that the government had um, 
had uh, rescinded the um, Deer Farming Act, I think it was the Deer Farming Act of 1986, mm -hmm. which stipulated fence height requirements and all the things you need to be to be a deer farmer. Yep. And we actually warned them at that time through the industry, do not repeal that act. Mm -hmm. And they didn't listen, they repealed it. So what it meant that there was no fence height requirements. So if you put deer on your property or on your own private property. So on with, a four strand barbed wire fence, you're a deer farmer. You're a deer farmer. Yep. Right, and a lot of people did. Yep. So what we're now paying for as, as hunters, mm -hmm. instead of being able to look at our historic herd of say red deer, historic herd of fallow or chittle or Moluccan rooster up in the islands, We've now got all these dozens and dozens of new releases. Scattered herds. Scattered across, herds. Across yeah, the country. Across the country. And what we've seen happen then, and our biggest problem I think we're facing now, is that government has thrown them all into the one basket as pests. Yep. That's a word I hate. I think it's the most disgusting four-letter word that twist, you can use. my gut when they yep. say that. And the worst thing of it all is our new age hunters have accepted that rubbish rhetoric of pest rhetoric that has been put out. They've accepted it as if it was candy. Yep. They've just taken it. That's their it. angle. That's their angle. Yeah. And they have thrown. They're throwing out the historic nature of yep. those deer. Which is a, a controversial subject. Being yourself, me, and a lot of other people like us. Yeah, and like we've been around these things, and to a certain extent, yes, you could. They're an introduced species. They've got a hoof. They're not yep. native to the country. A yep. pest is, yeah. I mean, that's one. That's one thing. Um, but that's an angle that certain certain um, affiliations are using to um, push their agenda to. Um, essentially gain access or try to gain access to public land correct yeah that is that is one there's one angle there are people that are trying to use that they've accepted it because they see the way through the door but it's 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 a quick way in one sense you could say it's a quick way through the door very very dangerous but way. it's not a long-term solution it, it, can end, it could end very, very badly for everybody. Really badly. Really badly. To me, they'll never, ever be a pest. I do not see them as a pest ever, the deer. No. Um, I was always taught to... That's a bit of our hearts talking, but as for yep. when we say a pest, yep. that's, you know, and that's, well, that's my heart talking, saying they're not a pest. You know, and yeah. Well, I look at it from, a, from an angle of someone that's utilised deer, yep. and I, I, I give well, so thanks to them. You see a value. Yep. In them. I've seen a value so. in them the whole time. Yep. Right? I've, been, I've been a hunting guide now for 35, 37 yep. years. Um, they've given me everything that I've got in life yep. um, because they're a great, to me, they're a great asset. Yeah. They're an absolute asset. They're a very, very poorly managed asset. Mm -hmm. And I'll get back to this. Like I mean, through the years, and there's something that we could talk about later at different times, but I've had I've had clashes with different organisations and and you know one of them being ADA who's I'm still a member I've been you know uh, involved for many years I dropped out for many years but I look at it that if that group alone because you know they have the deer people yep. their own saying the deer people if they'd been given a fair shot 
or if they had been prepared to accept middle ground and work with landowners, and let's mm -hmm. say they'd been given a fair shot at it right early on to manage these herds, we would not be in the problem we are in now. Yeah. Because it would have been started 50, 70 years ago. And mm -hmm. I look back at a lot of the things that were put up at the time to do things, and they were thrown, basically thrown back in our faces. Yeah. Right? It's even like in, in Victoria, if there'd been more of the country that's been locked up that hunters weren't allowed into, if they'd been allowed into a, into there under a proper system, you know, a system that had a more of a tag system and mm -hmm. and set quotas that we needed to, like you've seen it in America, yep. uh, where they've got to take X amount of animals out of a, you know different yep. areas to keep the populations under control. Yep. If it'd been done a little bit more scientifically in cooperation between government and the hunters, we would not be in the problem we're in now. No. No, that's right. Yeah. So, so it's but what we got to remember is you brought up America. They've put a value on them, and the value is what someone's essentially prepared to pay, and you got to pay your way. For something to be somewhere, it has to earn its stripes. So it has to be a value to either the farmer, or the government. Yeah, it's probably more more to it. I agree with it, but there's more to it in, in places like America because they're native animals. They're native, yeah. Right? So the government has a commitment mm -hmm. to, they've got a responsibility to yep. manage those animals. Yep. Okay, and we've seen that in things like the Pittman-Robertson Act over there in, in um, America. Yep. Where, well, I think it's 11%, is it, uh, tariff? Oh, I'm not too sure of the percentages, but, yep. but for people that don't know what the Pittman-Robertson Act is, is a... a, a a tax essentially put on outdoor equipment, rifles, ammunition, bows, hunting gear, anything to do with the outdoors, I'm sh almost 100% sure of. Don't quote me on that. There could be a few things I put in there that might not be included. Is a tax that us hunters, that we, they, sorry, the American hunters put their hand up and said, yes, I'm happy with that, to pay that little bit extra for that money to go into a kitty which was only allowed to be used for wildlife recovery regeneration yeah. wildlife management yeah so it's the only thing it can't be used for um a department saying oh you got a little bit extra over there we need a highway built over here it can't it's been put in legislation in such a way that yeah. it can only be used which is something that the forefathers over in America saw and put it in, I don't know, politics, but put it in a way that it can never be touched or yeah. used or anything but that, which is amazing. I think it was Theodore Ro uh, Teddy Roosevelt that started that mm -hmm. because he was a keen hunter himself. He was, right? yeah. What I've always said to people, we would have been in a much different position here in Australia if we'd had whitetail and muley and elk and grizzly bear and pronghorn and all that run around our hills instead of kangaroos and koalas and wombats, yeah. right? As much as I love our native animals, um, we haven't had anything in this country here that grew antlers. No. Nothing, right? So uh, it was all brought in. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with an animal that's an introduced animal. Now for me, the concept of using an introduced animal to, um, to use for food or um, 
to generate a business out of is not alien because we do that with cattle. We do it with sheep, mm -hmm. right? So why can't you do it with introduced species like wild deer and that as well? Yep. And I've, basically that's what I've, you know, whether it was by design or by just it happening, that's my whole life has revolved yep. around earning a dollar out of wild deer. Yep. Right? And deer farming them, cutting them for velvet and whatever. And over the years though, especially the last 20 years, I've concentrated on utilising deer for recreational hunting, mm -hmm. right? And, and I hear some people there and they're very badly informed saying that, you know, McGee would hate to see 2,000 more um, deer, uh, um, deer hunters running around in the Queensland bush here. I'd hate to see just 2,000. I'd like to see another 5,000. Yeah. You know, I want to see as many as we can, but not people that are running around the bush killing anything they see as a filthy, feral pest. Because yeah. if they've got that, they've got the wrong attitude. Yeah. Right? People that will have respect for that animal will have empathy for it. Will look well, at it. If people uh, do what you say and are given the green light, there'll be nothing left in 10 years. Yeah, not so much by what they do because a lot of the people that want to say, let us in there and we're going to be the great wildlife warrior and, and kill all these pests, most of them can't, you know, couldn't find their way back in the dark night. That's right. right? They can't. They think they can, but they can't. No. That's not where the real uh, problem's going to come. A lot of these people, you won't know where they're going to end up no. Landowners that have got the country next door or have got cattle grazing permits, whatever, will see pest weed spread. They'll yep. see bushfires started. They'll see gates left open and ruts drilled in roads and whatever. <coughs> There's that rooster again. <laughs> <laughs> and they see this. this. This country here, whether we like it or not, Queensland has got one of the biggest or the biggest population of cattle in it of any of our states. Yeah. Um, we have a huge dollar that comes out of recreational hunting and fishing and whatever, but when you compare it with the money generated by the cattle and sheep industries and cropping industries of this state, it's a it's a fraction. Oh. You know, it, it's small compared it's to the rural industries of Queensland. Yeah. So if we get into a situation where those landowners hate the deer. Which they're starting to. They are starting to. And they're getting forced then. And I've, you know, we've, uh, I think I've touched on the, the point because there. Because not are they only, it's not so much when you say hating the deer. They hate the deer, that's one thing. But also they hate on a Sunday afternoon while they're sitting down and having a friggin' Sunday lunch with their family, is some bloke with um, no, no respect for himself. Yep. You know what I mean? Knock it on the door, hey mate, I'm here to hunt your deer. And literally, that's how they ask. Like, I'm a landowner myself. I have people knock on my door. And yeah. they come to your door thinking they're doing you a favour. Yeah. So for everyone going around knocking on people's doors, have the back of your mind you're not doing them a favour. Mm. you got to... That's just their home, their house, their land. It's their backyard. It's a privilege it's if you're allowed on the property. Massive privilege. Like, you wouldn't believe. Like... Yeah, so don't cut that angle. Don't talk that crap on social media that you're doing them a favour. You ain't doing them a favour. You are doing them 
you're putting them out by having you wandering around their property with firearms, with guns, with bows, with dogs, leaving gates open, stirring up cattle, you know, not knowing exactly what you're doing, not being, having the right ethics, not knowing, you, you know, you just don't quite understand, but you aren't doing them or us a favour. But having said that, like, Majority of my best best mates around, best people I know, the most decent people I know are hunters. Yep. Right? Fantastic. Yep. And there's so many of them that will do the right thing oh, and, and are. Yep. But it's most, and all those guys and gals that I know, they have got a deep respect yep. for the landowners, yep. for the land, for the native animals and for the deer. Yep. A great respect. Yeah. None of those people that I hold cherished as, as our, you know, close friends see the deer as a pest. Yeah. They see them as poorly managed and they see it as a privilege to go on a landowner's property to help yeah. them. That attitude, right, if we can get the people, if we get more people thinking that way, then we can, this, is, this yeah. will work. Yeah, right? which will, when, when um, Clark says this will work, um, spending the night, the evening, today with Clark. Clark's, um, he has... I believe the founder of Ridge Group, correct? Yeah, there was, I think it was my concept for a start, mm -hmm. but it was something I didn't really know how the wheels fit on the machine, yep. but I knew there was a good machine there. Yeah. <laughs> but we had some good people, really good people that were, okay. were around us in those early days. The concept What was, is Ridge Group? Ridge, right. By its name, research into deer genetics and environment. Okay, so what we set out to do, and and when it really started, it kicked off as a angle in the Gympie and Mary Valley branch of ADA down here. One night, I think I was branch president at the time, and um, a lot of good people present, and we we said, why don't we do something with our research money that we had you know, squirreled away, and, and why don't we do something? And it came, you know, as something that we, we didn't have a name for it, but we were looking to... <laughs> we didn't have a name for it, but we were looking to do something to benefit the deer, because right at that stage where the government was saying that they are going to drop the, you know, the season, they're going to drop the um, classification as deer as protected, introduced fauna, yep. and turn them into feral. And we saw right from that stage, if we allowed the deer to become feral, then the pest, a pest listing was soon after that, and eventually we would see them treated as they are being treated today. So it was right in those early days, around 92, I think it was, 1992. Yep. And we said, let's do something. Soon after that, I was in uh, Coffs Harbour at a uh, Safari Club International meeting. I think it was the first one I ever went to. Mm -hmm. And there were some old characters a lot of people heard of down there that um, were, um, you know, willing to listen. Mm -hmm. And I went down there and got a chance to speak and said, this is what we're looking to do. We're looking to set up an, an organisation to, to do something for the deer. Uh, and at the stage, it was like uh, Robert Borzak was there. there. A lot of people know Robert Borzak. He's head of the Shooters and Fishers Party. Uh, great guys sat around this table many, many times with us here. And uh, Robert Brown, 
uh, Noel Spaulding, uh, you know, there was Johnny Simpson, uh, a lot of people down there that, that were listening. And we got so much support. We got support from um, the uh, New South Wales deer stalkers, Nepean hunters, buck masters, um, SCI. We had uh, and a couple other smaller groups. We had, uh, I think, six branches of ADA all saying they'd get behind us. And that's what Ridge was then, the idea, the concept began that we, if we got everybody to pool together funds, and if every group threw in some money each, then we could do research on the deer in Queensland. Uh, say like, a, for instance, if everybody threw in say $2,000, then we'd have $20,000 to put into research every year and everybody, every group would get the benefit of, <coughs> you know, $20,000 worth of um, research for $2,000. So yep. it was a joint approach yep. to finding the reasons why Governments shouldn't class them as a pest yep. animal, right? To, to, to back the deer up. Yep. We got tremendous support, absolutely tremendous support. We were then denied the ability to start the group by National ADA. They said, you will not. And that's, that's on record, that's in the minutes. Yeah. Uh, we were refused, we were told not to, under any circumstance, work with, definitely with SCI. Uh, it was a, there was a grudge match going on there, there was, and this is again, it's not just me talking, it's all in history there, there's yep. written down, there was a real grudge match going on. So a few of us pulled out and we said, right, we're going to do this privately. And that's when yep. we set up Ridge, Research into Deer Genetics and Environment, and with the support of these, these other groups to do something. Yep. Unfortunately, that raised the ire of some people in some of the organisations. Yep. And the next thing we know, we were basically blacklisted, um, you know, sent to Coventry. That if people wanted to support us, they didn't get support from anywhere else. Yep. That's when the trouble really started. And for me, there being, a, you know, this guy that used to catch deer with a chopper and a deer farmer and a landowner, and there was already some bad blood. Yep. And there was so much bad blood thrown our way. Literally, we have, we have had to fight it every step of the way yep. for the last 20 years. Yeah, I could imagine. Unfortunately. But you're still going. We're still going. And we've done quite a few research programs. We've done, uh, for a start, research on the uh, cattle ticks on the deer because at that time it was... Uh, there was a lot of concern that deer were spreading cattle ticks across the tick line here. Now, people that don't know, um, your um, Bufflus microplus, your uh, cattle tick, it actually, um, it exists in some area of Queensland, in other areas it doesn't. It causes a huge um, economic impact on the cattle uh, in, in this state. Uh, huge losses for landowners, uh, you know, the, the tick burden on some uh, livestock gets that bad, it'll kill them. Yep. It causes, you know, red water poisoning and, and all these different things. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big loss for landowners. And we've got a tick line that goes down through from you know, Kingaroy, Toowoomba Way, right yep. down through. And it almost to, follows the Great Dividing Range as such. Yeah, sort of on if that you, other side. Yeah. Give someone an idea, east of the Great Dividing Range, roughly, I know it goes inland further up yeah. north, is a tick zone. 
where yeah. west of the Great Dividing Range, when you start getting into the yep. Downs country, is tick free. Yep. And where we had problems at the time was some landowners had country on either side of the tick line. Yep. And they had to then um, get their cattle scratched, you know, check for ticks and treated before they could shift them from one property to the next, yep. right? And if you could sell cattle at a sale yard close here and uh, the same uh, cattle, if they were sold at say Warwick or Toowoomba, yep. would be bringing, you know, 50 or $100 or a couple of hundred dollars more per animal yep. just because of the tick status there. Correct. So it was a big issue for landowners. So we put a, um, a research program together because a lot of landowners were blaming the deer, correct? Blaming the deer. That's yep. the deer spreading the ticks. Yep. Well, what we found, and this was put out by the uh, DPI themselves, that out of, I think, 40 different outbreaks of ticks, 30-odd had been due that they knew definitely to illegal transportation of cattle. Yep. Right? So it wasn't a deer at all. No. And we found that um, even though the deer could carry ticks, and they do carry cattle ticks, yep. right, they're a very poor host. Yep. They're nowhere near like a, because it is a cattle tick, it's a, it's a you know, a, a bovine tick. The deer do carry them, but they don't, they're not as viable on the deer, mm -hmm. right? And the deer have an ability to groom themselves where they'll chew a lot of those ticks off. Um, there's a lot of things going in their favour. And what we found in the areas where the, the landowners keep the cattle clean, the deer will clean themselves. Yep. So they're a secondary host. That was found at the time. So we did that initial... Um, uh, research on the uh, deer on the ticks we followed it up with a research program on deer nutrition mm -hmm. that pretty much found the deer in Queensland were as nutritionally as sound as any other deer herd in the world yeah right? it was done with uh, Professor Gordon Dryden from yep. University of Queensland uh, we did a helicopter survey on the deer to try and establish a way of getting a herd count from you know by hunters and landowners yeah um, we had collars, the first collaring program, uh, tracking uh, program in Queensland for wild deer. Uh, I think for eight years or nine years we had collars on deer where we were actually tracking those. A lot of these, this information we'll put forward on, on my site, on my uh, yep. website and that soon. Uh, we'll be cutting clips on each of those to give people that background. Yep. Uh, and we've done um, probably what we tried to establish was a management system of how to develop, you know, if this research, if we're going to do the research, how do we best utilise that research? What yeah. do we put it towards? So yeah. the idea was to put this research... That should be a why. A why, right? Okay, you don't just do something willy-nilly no. for the hell of it. There needs to be a why, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, so we we're trying to establish that, that it was possible to set up a management plan for wild deer that would allow them to stay as a valuable asset of the people of this state. Mm -hmm. So we'll give, we're doing the groundwork for yep. it. The next step really was to then establish a system. And you're not, everyone used to accuse, you've heard Clark say it before that he's doing it for him. You can see the way he's describing things, he's not doing this for him. At the end of the day, Clark can go hunt whenever he wants and go shoot a deer. So if you, Read between the lines, he's saying we're doing this, and you can see why I think is because he's doing this for future generations. So, which is make sure he's uh, yeah, listening, reading between the lines here. So, keep going, mate. 
Uh, well, thanks for that. But it's, <laughs> like people say I'm doing it for a the A lot money. of people accuse you <laughs> of otherwise, and yeah. I've heard it. Yeah. And um, well, you can see it, yourself. It's what you, not what, true. What you see, mate, is is what you do, what yeah. you get. Um, I I'm not a rich man, right? I, I do oh. not have money squirrelled away. I'm, no. I'm not there as a big rich landowner or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose for me. Being able to walk out in the morning and see the sunrise and with no noise, yep. you, know, you, can, you know, the right time of the year you hear the stags roaring yep. and uh, you know, the birds in the trees and you know, get a bit of kindling together and, and branches that fall off a gum tree there and you put it in, and get a fire going and boil up some water. A lot of people see that as hardship, but really that's, that's life. That's, that's just living. That's, yeah, it is living. It is living, right. So, so there's a lot of rewards on that side. When I see somebody come out with me that's never shot a deer, and they go and they, they'll shoot their first deer, and you see the emotions that run through them and the respect that runs through them, yeah. right? Because they're not out there to kill some nasty feral pest. They've taken that animal with reverence. Mm. They're taking it with, with so much empathy yep. for the animal and respect. It's hard to put that across to somebody that doesn't understand. But That's right. I, I, I've seen it hundreds of times now. Hundreds and hundreds of times I've taken people out to shoot yep. their first deer. A lot of people that are hunters just look at us as bloodthirsty killers. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm telling you right now that we care more about the deer yeah. and the wildlife than any wildlife warrior sitting on a friggin' desk yeah. in the friggin' city. Exactly. I can guarantee it. At the end of the day, they... they pretend like they care they don't yeah if they care they'd be out of your boots on the ground yeah doing what matters and they're yeah. not out of your boots on the ground doing what matters exactly so yeah yeah well, so i'm going to go back to ridge because we haven't finished there because no. people need to hear about what ridge is yeah um so you're doing research and development right a lot of people see ridge as just the ballot yeah right? so the red red deer ballot well essentially you've d you do you started off as a research, yep. okay? And then with that research, you're then also offering the opportunity for people who don't have private land access, a place to go, a place to yep. hunt, an opportunity to hunt. Yep. And if you don't know how, uh, you will learn from the best of them. You'll, you'll learn your why you need what not why you need to hunt you you'll learn what there is it's a great avenue for someone who hasn't experienced it yet so you'll learn from the best and you're giving people that opportunity to go somewhere yeah well, what that was probably one of the crucial points right for a start at coffs harbour at the sci meeting so many years ago they said we really want somewhere where people can hunt yeah so it was a double-edged sword people were were keen to put some money in behind research, but they also wanted hunting opportunities. Yeah. So as a guide, as a hunting guide, I was selling you know hunts then for I think it was $2,100 or whatever and taking people on guided hunts, uh, and um, which I still do to a lesser degree. But to me, it was to say, okay, that's, that's a high price. Not many people can afford it. Mm -hmm. People can if they save up, but the everyday guy that's got a family and debts and whatever, he but that's finds only it hard. one time you get to go. Yeah, one time, right? So your twenty one hundred dollars that gives you one, yeah. one trip 
four or five days, seven days at the most. Yeah. And we realise right from the start that there's a lot of good hunters out there that don't need to be guided. They want to do it themselves. Yep. And that's all good and I fully respect that. So that was the idea of saying, how do we set up a system where the everyday guy can afford to go hunting and be allowed to go hunting, get access, get a chance to shoot a good stag at the right price. Or right? even just shoot a meat animal. Or shoot a meat animal, yep. exactly. So this was, this was the, the thing we put to us. So right, how do we develop this system? So instead of taking, you know, like two guys a, a week on a guided hunt, so mm -hmm. right, I what say I set up a system where we take 20 guys a week and we put them into, uh, using a ballot system, we put them into blocks, which is a property, you know, you might have a property and it's divided up by paddocks into yep. something and you'll give one guy two paddocks and this guy over here gets one big paddock and that one gets three smaller paddocks or whatever. Yep. And have, develop a system where we can be handling 20 guys a week instead of two. Yep. And that's what we've developed. So this, this year was our 25th successful ballot. We had one you know, that went through to the keeper because of COVID. Yep. We couldn't take people out, uh, which is, you know, is a tragedy for us. It nearly put the whole system under. Yep. Um, but we're back. This year was a, a really great uh, example of what we can do. We had 70 odd hunters. Um, out in the bush over a five week, uh, five week period. They took, by memory, 52 stags and, and a couple of hinds. Um, trophy quality, I think we had uh, uh, well over half were over double five mm -hmm. and the rest were what we call management stags, a big threes and four threes and two yep. fours and whatever, red yep. stags. But you know there was a, you know the group of double sixes and six fives and that that were yep. taken in the top end of that a really good group of uh, stags. Our average age was nine year old of the animals taken, so yep. the mature animals. The system worked. It was a really really good year this year, um, and a lot of people think that they you know they're getting charged the earth, um, but people that have been here like some of our. Hunters, uh, one guy that helps me out quite a, quite a bit, Clint, he's been here 23 of those 25 ballots. Mm -hmm. His son's been up here for 19 of those ballots. Yeah. Right, so that's the sort of dedication. Yeah, there's, there's people, people with friggin' yep. blood in the game. They, they save up for it. Yeah. $700 for the, for the week hunting. Yeah. Right. And if they shoot a trophy stag, it's 500, 300 on a management stag, 200 on a cull. Which is pittance on today's market right and the landowner gets the majority of that money through to them yeah right so the, the the crux of the whole thing is our landowners now and some of them have been supporting us for all of that you know 25 ballot seasons uh those landowners see the deer on the property as an asset and, yeah. and even better they see the hunters coming in especially if you're a ridge group member they see you as an asset. They yep. said they are one of our team. You know, yep. they, they love the hunters coming in there and uh, they see the deer as an asset, not a yep. pest to get, yep. to, to get rid of. They see that their numbers have to be kept down yep. and their quality up. They're yep. quite happy with that. So that's the system has now worked for that length of time. Yep. Um, the flip side of that as well is that we've also, it's not just about hunting trophy stags. The yep. trophy stags generates big interest you know people um it it um 
it gives people something to aspire to. Yeah. Now people want to shoot a big trophy stag. They want to one day get that, but they also want to get meat and put in the in the freezer yeah. for the family. So there's more to it than just the trophy side, and that's why we came up with the Glenfiddich project, where we. Um, so it's a separate branch. Separate an branch. Yeah. Of Ridge Group. So yeah. So what Ridge did. As a group, it says we've got to get this and it's got to be self-funding, self-regulating, self-managing. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's not for the Ridge Group itself to run the show. Right? Yep. Like if the people look at it as the parent body that is coming up with ideas, but it's left to like contractors to do the actual work, to do the hard yards. So that's where... Uh, my own personal business, Australian Wild Country Adventures, for Judy and I, yep. um, it comes in. We are a contractor that then works directly with the landowners and we only take people in our Glenfiddich or in our Ridge ballot that are members of Ridge Group. Yep. Right. So it's a, it's a Ridge initiative and it's designed to run by itself so it can be duplicated. Yep. So there could be literally dozens of other people doing the same thing as we are. Yeah. Right. And that was our dream that one day this will catch on and there'll be many people doing the same thing. Yeah. Right. We're not trying to hog it all ourselves. No. A lot of people have accused I, us of that all. I can assure you that crazy. Is, there's no there's no me involved in this at all. It's all give, give, give. I can see that. I really can. And um, so your Glenfiddich is a separate branch which offers meat hunts. Yep. Or cull hunts, correct? Yes. Yeah, so the everyday person that wants to fill the freezer, we said, righto, let's set up uh, at the end of the um, ballot period, which is basically the end of April from then on for the rest of the year, let's get a system in place where people can come and shoot a meat animal. Uh, bring the family camp, and that's where yeah the Glenfiddich um, arose from. Membership to Glenfiddich is uh, at the moment six sixty dollars a year, six hundred and sixty bucks, and that uh, for one hunter. And some you know guys come up here with their wives or girlfriends, kids, and they'll you know they'll come up maybe six or eight ten times a year. Yeah, and we've got a uh, a number of different properties that we hunt on for for hinds or like you said, cull yep. stags. And uh, some of the guys might shoot, you know, half a dozen deer for the year. Yeah. You know? And for them, my one guy described it to me, he said, you can look at it a couple of different ways. You can you can come up and say that your camping's free and your you know, visitation and that is all free and sitting around the campfire and, you know, Judy cooking up a, a dessert or whatever, that's mm -hmm. all free and you pay $200 a deer on average. Yeah. Right? Or, um, people say, right, oh, then the, your deer are free, but your camping is hundred dollars yep. a night for the for the family. Yeah, yeah. They, there's a number of different ways to look at it, but, but the easiest, simplest way is six hundred dollars gains you access. Access. Okay, yep. and then a hundred dollars to shoot a meat animal. Yeah, and as long as there's an available spot, which you showed me an app that you guys have developed. Yeah. Um, which is seems very simple, very straightforward. We've all got smartphones these days. Essentially, on the weekend, if you want to go, you check up this app, you see if there's a spot available, and you book in by the click of a button. Yeah. So yeah. there's no, you know what I mean? And you can plan ahead, obviously. 
Yeah. You know, look, book miles ahead, two, three weeks' time, thinking of going. It's easy, click of a button. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, it's. That's what we've tried to design a system that's duplicatable, um, that it shouldn't be just on one or two properties, it should be on hundreds of properties around the state yep. doing the same thing. There's a lot of considerations there that have got to be taken into, into account. A lot of people don't understand the insurance. And again, it's like something that would take ages to go through. Oh, yeah. But insurance uh, for landowners, it is if, if there's money involved, then it turns into a completely different sphere. It's tourism, it's yeah. hunting tourism. Uh, and a lot of operators that are out there that are trying to do stuff, and I know some in different states, that they haven't got adequate insurance to cover the landowners. Yeah. Right? And insurance is big dollars when big it thing. comes to yep. walking around someone's paddock with a rifle in your hand. Yep. So if a landowner's doing it, doing it themselves, in most cases, they are leaving themselves wide open. Yeah. So that's what we've set up, and the way that the Ridge wanted it designed was to set up, so we are the contractor, Working for the landowner, we are the ones that are responsible. We're the ones that put the best, you know, the, the best practice system in place, and uh, we have to call the shots. So the contractor, which is us or could be anybody else, actually uh, is is in charge. Yeah. Right. So there are rules involved with it. Right. We just don't let people come here and shoot wherever they want to, whenever they want to. Um, you know, you've got to wear the blaze orange. Uh, there's a lot of things like, you know, people can't come here and sit down in the middle of the day and sink half a, you know, half a carton of stubbies and then expect to go out and, and go hunting in the afternoon. Which right? is, yeah, which is, to me... It should be common sense. It's common sense. It should be common sense. So if you sense. ain't got no common sense, I wouldn't bother reaching out. No. If you've got good. some common sense or you'd like to get some common sense, I suggest you look these fellas up. So... Yeah, I'm not sure what, what much more to say. Like, and <laughs> you also, if you're if you're sitting on the fence and you're not sure about, you've never hunted before, and you think, oh, I don't know what to do, you're, you're here to teach as well. You're not just yeah. here to say, go for it, mate, good luck. No. You're no. here to teach. The, you're here well, to educate, show them the right way, yeah. the wrong way, yeah. which essentially reflects on all of us hunters. Yeah. So you're not going to get left in the dark. No, we don't believe in that at all. You know, the best asset we've got are well-educated, well, not say educated, what's the right word for it? Well-intentioned, uh, caring, respectful hunters mm -hmm. and their families, uh, especially with their families because we've got to have those younger generations coming on. Yep. Uh, so it's, again, it's a dual-edged sword. We've got to give an opportunity, but we've got to have people that are willing to take the opportunity with respect, yep. right, to do the right thing. Yeah. Because the landowners now, as one said to us the other day there, he said, whenever I see you guys with your blaze orange, I just give you a wave because I know you are doing the right thing. Yep. Right, so we've put a... We've put a standard there where we're hoping that people will, will reach up to, aspire to, and that's a standard where we are respected by landowners, uh, respected by government. We are left alone by the, you know, the, the animal welfare people that they realise we are trying our very hardest to, to um, reach the highest levels of, of um, performance. Yep. That we're, we're not 
being nasty to uh, to the deer. That's not our intention at all, no, ever. Not, you're not nasty to deer at all, are you? <laughs> says, as a rooster stag just walks into the living room. Yeah, that's just a little <laughs> baby, the pet. You eat my cake, baby, and I'll throttle you. Those <laughs> you'll see, can't, we're you'll not see obviously nasty. on video, but um, <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll realise when you come here one day if you yeah if you reach out that we're not all bloodthirsty killers. Like deep down inside, I think we're all exactly. as soft as gooey as friggin'. <laughs> if not, then the next person. So yeah, when you get a rooster deer eating out of your hand here, that's uh, it's pretty good, isn't it? It is. It is. That's it. It's to us. It's like hey, we can. Oh, have to try and see. <laughs> We've got a drama going on here in the middle of the living room. We got a rooster deer trying to pinch a cake that Judy just cooked. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the crux of it. If hunting is going to survive for the future, we've got to be responsible. Yep. We've got to take responsibility for our own actions. And a lot of people are there saying, just let us in and we'll do it. Let us kill these nasty feral pests and whatever. They are kidding themselves. That's the wrong attitude because literally what they've done is they've thrown the best part of what we're doing under the bus. Yep. They've just thrown it out. We're hunters. We should be proud of it. We're, being a hunter doesn't mean um, that you're somebody that's going to be nasty to that animal. The, the, the hunters are the ones that revere these animals. Mm. They'll go out of their way not to shoot a female when she's got a little fawn, yep. a dependent fawn. These other guys are saying, let us in all year round and let's kill everything, yep. everyone. That's wrong. Yep. Right? We do not want to see that happen. Right? No. We're looking at the younger stags there, the good quality young stags, and we're saying, won't that make a great trophy for somebody to aspire to one day? Yeah. And what it does is when, when someone aspires, then they participate. Mm -hmm. And they also, they respect. Yep. And, and that all starts to generate an environment yep. where hunters are what they should be. They, they are. But uh, I think also, not just hunters, people today's, uh, in today's, world we all want something now yeah yeah we we're not thinking long term you know yeah. like we're not thinking of the futures we're not thinking of our children's future our grandchildren's future we all want something now people so, are feeling so entitled yeah they say and that's ours yeah. and we should have yeah. the right to do this yeah and i was brought up and and my dad was you gotta he, earn it he earned us you, you, you can't yeah. just expect something if you yeah. want something you gotta go get it get you gotta it. earn it you've got to earn it yeah, um, yeah, you've got, um, and that's today's mentality is um, they believe they're very entitled. Entitled, exactly. So, my dad would always get an apple. I remember as a, as a youngster, he'd get an apple, he'd cut it in half, and he'd say, "What do you do now?" And he'd say, "Which is the big bit?" And there'd always be one half of the apple that's a little bit bigger than the other, right? Yeah. You always give that other half, the big half to your mate. Yep. You always give the big half to the other person. Right? Yep. He said, if you do that, you'll never go wrong. Yep. Right? Uh, be prepared to share and be prepared to give more than what you want yourself. Yep. So a lot of these people that are demanding their rights, first of all, if they'd come in saying, we'll take responsibility, then the rights come with it. The rights are naturally given. Yeah. You go and demand something, 
without rights, you're mm. going the wrong way about it. I believe so. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's something that I was taught by dad and mum to 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 do that. Always look yeah. at the other other person. Yeah. And here we're looking at the landowners, we're looking at the environment, we're looking at the whole picture to say how do we leave this better for our grandkids, our great grandkids. How do you leave it better from yeah, from the way you walk into it? Yeah. That's what we're gonna do. How do you at. do it? And it's not just my grandkids, it's your grandkids, yep. right? Is your grandkids' grandkids? Yeah. You know, we want them to have a reason to be able to walk out in the bush. Mm. Okay, and that's why that deer is on the coat of arms of Queensland. Yeah. Right? It was put there for a very specific reason. Um, we'll go into that. There's another clip we'll be doing very soon. Yeah. Is on the coat of arms of Queensland to um, yep. to show people what it means. Yeah. Um, so I encourage anyone who's listening to um. If you don't know Clark McGee, or you want to know more about Clark McGee, all wild country, all ridge group, you've got many social media outlets, yeah. whether Instagram, Facebook, look him up, have a look. Um, watch some clips, watch some videos, and uh, you'll learn a lot. And um, you'll realize that, yeah, if we're, if we're not careful, we're going to lose it all. Yeah. Real That's quick. Quicker than what we believe. Quicker well, than what, what we, we think. Yeah. So That's, we'll try and explain some of those some of those uh, concerns as well on clips. And, yep. and probably, if, if I can say that, uh, that we haven't done a good enough job. When I say we, collectively, yep. um, you're doing your bit. And yep. I really respect that there. That's fantastic. You're, you're getting across to people, all yep. different angles. Yep. And we've got to look at all the different angles. We from Ridge Group, we haven't probably done as much as what we could to let people know what we're doing, mm -hmm. but we felt we had to get the runs on the board first. Yep. We had to do the research, develop the system. You can't go spruiking about something before We've, you've you actually done it. it right? So right. we've done it, we've tested it, See. we've put the 25 years in it or more, and we're now saying we've got something. Yep. Right? Here it is, we've got something, everybody can benefit from it, but what it needs is some cool heads yep. and cooperation. Yep. So far, what we're not getting is, is that. We're, we're getting people that are bringing in old grudges and old, you know, something that they heard on the grapevine that's a you know, Chinese whisper sort of style that yep. they, they've heard that McGee did this or he's doing it for his own benefit or whatever. It's not just me in the Ridge That's Group. That's a whole lot of bullcrap. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our Ridge Group has got a lot of the most decent people that you'll ever meet in it. Yep. That are committed people. They're not out there waving a banner or, you know, or, or mm -hmm. spruiking. They're there working behind the scenes to come up with a better future for all hunters yep. and, and all landowners. Yep. Uh, so that's what I'd say about our group. We've got a great team of gals and, and, and guys there. Um, now they've asked me to try and put the information out in front of people. Yep. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. Yep. Now I reckon, um, yeah. So, guys, if you're looking for somewhere to learn a bit, look them up, eh? They wouldn't be too hard to find. You look them up on the internet, Ridge Group, yep. social media, and also um, Wild Country. And, yeah, I, there'll be some doors there for you to open. It's up to you guys if you want to walk through or not. Yeah, but the doors are there, so yeah. we we like to open up the front door for people. Yep, right. Yeah, so don't come sneaking around the back. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Come in the front door, come in with respect. Yep. And you're welcome. Yep. 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 So guys, again, look them up and um, it's been a pleasure, Clark. It really has. Yeah, it has been, mate. Very so, welcome uh, anytime. We'll come back maybe if you get back and we'll do something else like this. I reckon so. There'll yep. be, yeah. I reckon there's a lot of things that people need to need to know, yeah. should know, and yeah. Yeah, if um, there's an old saying about people that don't learn from his, history are, are bound to repeat it. Yeah, bloody yeah. So yep. let's let's learn from our mistakes and go on. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're going to finish with a um, few words, a bit of a poem that I I um, heard last night. And uh, I want you to listen to it carefully, the words, and um, especially, yeah, you'll, you'll listen to it, guys. I want you to, um, it touches deep, I reckon, so. <laughs> um, Righto, mate. Right, you expect me to just rattle it off. Right, I'll, I'll try. This, I'll give a little bit of, well, I've already given, I suppose, a little bit of background, but it was at a time where I was trying to develop my understanding of, where I was in life, like I said, you know. Your why. Why, yeah, why are we doing this? What's, yep. And it was a big question for me and it's starting to be clearer, but it's still, you know, it is still muddy for a lot of people. So I, I wrote this poem, I sat down on a 17 year old and I wrote this poem, among others. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, who owns the deer? And this actually happened. I had people come to our property and it turned a bit nasty yep. because I wouldn't just give them free access onto our property to shoot deer. Again, people turn up thinking they're doing your favour. Yep. Oh, righto. There's this fella from the big smoke. He called in my place one day. He was heading up the bush somewhere, so he called in on his way. He said he was an ADA man and he, he said they owned the deer. They'd been put into the bush for them down round Cresbrook somewhere. Then he proceeded to put the bite on me, the, the rights to stalk and hunt my land. But he coughed and he swore and he spluttered when I told him my demands. I said that he could hunt my land for a fair and an honest fee. He told me then to go to hell, he'd jump my fence for free. He said I had no rights to commercialise the deer. Then he relented, he became as nice as pie, he tried to con me with a beer. Now it's true, we don't mind a hare or two, a rabbit or a stag up on the hill, but when down on the crops they fall, just who then pays the bills? Do we look after them, put up with them, provide crops, pastures and a sheltered tree, just so you at your whim and your leisure can come and hunt for free? And forget not the cost of Easter when honest men's morals fail, when the roaring stag starts to sickness and widespread madness prevails, when stock is shot and fences cut and blatant lies are spread, the stockman swears at the echoed shot and he wishes all the deer were dead. For if there were no deer, there'd be no trouble or strife. The poacher would have to pick up a golf club, no more pickups on Easter nights. So what of these deer, I ask you, my mob, 200 strong, just to whom do I address the bill? Just to who do they belong? Now fair is fair, I reckon, 
you can't have it all your bloody way. If you're not prepared for middle ground, they simply won't be here one day. Thank you for listening to the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. If you would like any information from today's show, please don't hesitate to contact us on huntingcampdownunder at gmail.com or simply hit us up on any of our social media outlets on Instagram or Facebook. Be sure to join us next week for another awesome episode and we look forward to sharing another story from Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.